How to play episode number six, Stone Age. Today I have an exclusive interview for my episode with an actual caveman that lived many, many eons ago. His name is Mr. Booga. Mr. Booga, thank you for being here today. Ugh. Yes, Mr. Booga, uh, could you tell us how hard it is to survive as a caveman? Surviving hard. Now, we notice that you have a tendency to want to build your buildings from gold. Doesn't that seem very ridiculous with all the, you know, stone piles sitting around and, you know, living in a forest? Why wouldn't you just use, say, that stone that's sitting over there or, or some of those trees? Gold shiny! I see. Gold is shiny. Um, so you, um, you continue to grow your tribe and, and succeed and have your tribe get larger. Um, that's really impressive, the way that you manage all of those difficulties to be able to grow into the species that we are today. How fantastic. Booga like love hut. I see, and I have been told from the uh, cave women that you are very adept at the acoustic guitar. Is that true? Booga play pretty music. Oh, excellent. Um, will you lead us into this episode, Mr. Booga, uh, with some of your legendary acoustic guitar playing? Ugh. Ah, excellent. So, here we go, episode number six, Stone Age. Take it away, Mr. Booga. Welcome once again to How to Play. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from Western New York. This podcast is recorded on November 15th, 2009. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, let me tell you that this podcast is about learning and teaching games. It's for people who want to learn a game by themselves. They want to learn about how to teach a game, or maybe they want to learn a game as a whole group. You can get other episodes by visiting my website, howtoplaypodcast.com, or by subscribing on iTunes. It will be helpful if you have your rule book with you and those game components right in front of you if you'd like to refer to those during my explanation. First of all, I want to thank everybody for the great feedback I've been getting, for coming and voting in the poll. Uh, we're really starting to grow as a podcast. I was really happy to beat that milestone of over 1,000 episodes of How to Play have been downloaded. Please continue to leave feedback. It really helps me out as I continue with this project. I'd love to know also how you're using the podcast and anything specific you like or don't like about the podcast. One of the reasons you haven't heard from me for a while is because uh, I simply ran out of storage space for the month because I had put so many initial episodes out. But it's November, we're back, and I've got a whole bunch of episodes that I'm looking forward to doing. Today I will be covering a fantastic next step game, Stone Age. This is the second worker placement game I'll be talking about. Uh, so just for fun, I'd like to talk a little bit about worker placement in general and other worker placement games. As always at the beginning here, uh, this is the part of the podcast where I like to babble a little bit about some of the history of the game or game mechanics. If you want to get straight to the rules of the game, fast forward until you hear that guitar music. 
Stone Age was part of the great worker placement design craze between about 2006 and 2008, which started with a masterpiece game that was Kalos, which came out in 2005. Masterpiece in my opinion, at least a lot of people really disliked the game. I believe Kalos is a brilliant game. It introduced this idea of worker placement, and it's really become a major game mechanic in which to structure games around, and so many different games started coming out. It's a simple idea that is a wonderful framework for a game. On your turn, you have 5 to 15 choices of what you can do. You choose what you'd like to do by taking that action with one of your pieces, and generally that locks other players out from doing that action. And you really have to prioritize carefully because each round you have less and less options. You need to analyze which action is the most powerful as well as which actions might still be available if you don't take that round the first, first time around. Maybe you can get it the second time around. What made Kalos particularly brilliant is that it combined that idea with the element of risk as certain actions, depending on where they were in the line, uh, had a possibility of not actually happening depending on the motives and, and wealth and money of the other players. But again, ahead of myself, that's a topic for another episode. I believe William Adia, the designer of Kalos, he should get a lot more credit than he does. Not only did he design one of the greatest board games ever created, but also this main structure of worker placement inspired the design of so many other incredible games which followed from 2006, uh, including some of my own favorite games, Agricola, Age of Empires, Stone Age, and not to mention other popular games such as Pillars of the Earth, Tribune, Kingsburg, the list goes on and on and on forever. The innovation of worker placement I think will continue to lead to many other great games in the future. I, I thought a lot about, you know, how did this, where did this idea come from? It seems so original and so unlike anything I'd ever seen before. You know, I definitely wondered, you know, where, where he got this idea. Did it come from other games he had played? And, you know, I was thinking about were there other games before that had similar ideas. Uh, I had a conversation with this uh, with a gamer from Syracuse called Ian McInnes. And Ian said that, you know, if you think about it, this mechanic is really just a variation of drafting, which isn't really that new of an idea at all, which was fascinating to me because I was, I, I'm a big magic player. I played magic for many years and I loved the drafting. You know, drafting is when you got a pack of cards, you take one, pass it to the left, get another one, take one, pass it to the left, and that's how you got the cards for your deck. I never thought about how that was similar to the play in a game like Kalos or Agricola or Stone Age in that you have to pick what you'd like and each round you have less and less choices. That a worker placement game is very much like the sub-game there in a magic draft or even something like a draft for fantasy football. Anyway, let's get back to Stone Age specifically. I've discussed the mother, quite literally, of all these worker placement games, which is Kalos. Kalos is a brilliant game. However, Kalos is another double black diamond game. You know, it's best enjoyed with people who are willing to commit, you know, 10, 20, even 100 plays of this two-hour game in order to fully realize the, the depth of that game. Now, Stone Age is a game that captures the essence of what's fun about Kalos and similarly Agricola, the idea of making numerous small little decisions and boils it down to a more digestible game. 
This game is very intuitive. It can be learned quickly and enjoyed by just about anyone. And it also throws in this really enjoyable dice rolling mechanic that adds to the luck factor of the game, but it can really add to the enjoyment of the game too. You know, it's great fun to fill that cup full of dice and just go for fives and sixes. This can be a plus also because it can make the game more competitive between players of different skill levels. Whereas Kalis, if you have someone who's played 20 games of it, you really can't sit at the same table. Though I'm happy to say that Stone Age still has enough of a learning curve where a person who has played the game 20 times should be able to beat someone who's played it only a few times. But again, that luck factor is there to keep it more interesting. Complexity rating. Blue square. This game is a perfect next step game. If you have friends or family who've enjoyed lighter games that you've tried with them, such as Inca Gold, Transamerica, or Ticket to Ride, this is a great next step. It adds a bit more complexity along with strategic play, but it's very intuitive to learn and it has a well-integrated theme that will appeal to just about anyone. Who is this for? Who would enjoy Stone Age? Well, I'd use this game with people who like medium weight games. Games that aren't too long, yet have enough complexity to allow for strategic play. If you have a group that's fans of games such as Carcassonne or Settlers of Catan, but probably don't want anything more than that, this is the game you're looking for. It's great because it strikes a nice balance between being accessible to a wide variety of people and being interesting enough for your average gamer. This also might be a good litmus test for what games uh, these people like that you're introducing this game to. If they really enjoy this, you may be able to go ahead and try and step up to an Agricola or Puerto Rico. Also, keep in mind this is a great stepping stone for some of the more complex worker placement games, such as if you wanted to try Agricola, starting them in with Stone Age might help them learn about worker placement and then they can go to Agricola and feel a little bit more confident about how that game works. They might even want to try Age of Empires or Kalis or one of the other many great worker placement games out there. Uh, if they don't like this, you may want to head back down to filler games and party games. You have to remember something I've learned sadly over the last few years. Not everybody likes Euro games. As many as you'll try, they don't want to play medium or heavyweight games. Though I think for a lot of people, uh, Stone Age is that just right game. You know, you have Papa Bear's game, which is Kalis, which is ton of rules, takes a ton of time to learn, and takes a ton of time to learn the strategy. On the other end, you've got something like, you know, Transamerica, which for a lot of people is too light, and they think it's just, there's just not enough to it. Stone Age really fits right in, and it's that porridge that Goldilocks wants to try. Did I push that analogy too far? Okay, let's just get to the hook. Part one, the hook. What this game is about. Hello, caveman people. You are the leader of a tribe of primitive people at the dawn of mankind. Your goal is to develop some semblance of civilization by using your tribe members to acquire resources, and then you spend those resources to gain victory points, either through building huts or buying civilization cards. This is a worker placement game. We'll take turns placing one or more of our five workers into one area on the board. You may use one of your people or more people to get one of the five resources, 
or to use resources you've already gotten to score victory points by building a building tile or through buying a civilization card. There's also three special huts which have special powers I'll tell you about in just a bit. At the end of the game, the person who plays their workers the most efficiently to score the most points through hut tiles and civilization cards will be the winner. Part two, the meat. How do you play the game? So at the heart of this game is making good choices of where to send your worker. You have five workers to use each turn. One person will randomly be chosen as the start player, and they'll get the chief token, and they'll get to go first by playing one or more of their workers on the board. As in most worker placement games, when someone places a worker in an area, it generally blocks other people from being able to take that action on the turn. Now on your turn, you'll be able to only play workers in one particular area on the board. You'll continue placing workers clockwise around the table until everyone has placed all their workers. After all the workers have been placed on the board, each player will resolve the actions of their workers one player at a time and remove the workers then from the board. At the end of the round, you must pay one food for each tribe member. So if you have five people, you have to pay five food. We change the start player and we do it all over again. So let's go back over that. First, the worker placement phase. Look on the board, you'll see a bunch of white circles all over that board. Each area there's a white circle, that's a place where you can play your workers. Now there may seem to be like a billion options there, but when we break it down, there's really only four major choices of what you can do. You can acquire a resource, you can go to one of the special huts, you can buy a building tile, or you can buy a civilization card. I'll go over each one of these in detail. First of all, let's talk about how to get resources. There's five different resources and they all essentially work the same way. The five spots are the hunting grounds, the forest, the clay pit, the quarry, and the river. These spots are used to acquire food, wood, brick, stone, and gold respectively. How these spaces work are you choose how many people you want to go work in that area. The more people you play in an area, the more chance you'll have to be able to get more resources. The more valuable a resource is, the harder it is to collect. Each resource has what I'm going to call a collection number. That collection number is shown on your player boards. Food is the easiest and has a collection number of two. Then wood has three, brick is a four, stone is a five, and gold is a six. It takes a really long time for cave people to claw gold out of those mountains or you know, pan for gold with their bare hands. You also notice that these resource areas are located from left to right on the game board to help you remember how hard they are to get. In the upper left hand corner you'll see sort of the forest with the mammoths and then the trees and then the hills and then the mountains and then the rivers. That's where you're going to go to get resources. When we finish playing all our workers and you're resolving the actions, that's when you're going to get to try to get those resources. How you do that is you roll one die for each person you put in the area. So say you put three people in the forest to go get wood. You'd roll three dice. Say I got nine pips. All right, so a total of nine. I had maybe four, uh, three, and a two. So I take that nine and I divide it by the collection number, which is three. Nine divided by three is three, so I earn uh, three wood. Let's say I go to gold. 
I have two workers on gold, I get to roll two dice. I roll, say, a five and a four. Five plus four is nine. I, I get to divide, nine divided by six is one. They only fit one, six, and nine, so that'll give me one gold. There's some left over there, but those remaining are just lost. So sometimes if you can you know, roll a little unlucky, say I had those two guys there and I rolled a three and a two, I would have gotten a five and so I would have collected zero gold. So there is that factor, you need to count that into play when you're deciding where to put people. When you're going to get resources, you can put as many people as you want in the area on that, on that turn of playing workers. So if I'm going into the forest, I could put four of my workers and put them right in the forest for my first turn. Uh, then the next person would go. Note there's only seven spots in each area. So the first person puts four guys into the forest, the next person puts three guys into the forest, the forest is all full, and they'll have to go somewhere else. Notice the hunting ground has uh, unlimited spots that people can go. There can be more than seven in that area. Also know that you have to put all the workers you want in an area at that first turn. I can't lay two of my workers in the forest, wait for it gets to be around me my turn again, and then put two more workers in the forest. You can only lay in a certain area once per turn. So you get all these resources, what are you gonna do with them? First of all, food. It's very important that you have food. At the end of each turn, you're going to have to feed your people. You have five people, so you're gonna to have to pay five food at the end of the turn. You start the game with 12 food, so you'll probably have enough for the first two turns. But after that, you're going to need to start going to that hunting grounds. Building resources, everything but food, that's the wood, the brick, the stone, and the gold, you're going to use those to build building tiles or to buy civilization cards. Now, let's talk about those three special huts in the middle of the board. The farming hut, the love hut, and the tool making hut. All three of these can be really powerful, especially early in the game. Let's talk about each one. From left to right, first of all, the farming hut. It's right by the field of grain there. Here your tribe can get better at farming. You put one person in there, and when you resolve this spot, you move your number of farms up by one. Now you have one farm. Hooray! Who cares? Well, what it does is at the end of every turn, you know how you have to pay one food for each person? Well, you get to subtract the number of farms you have each turn. So if you go to that farm spot, now instead of five, you only have to pay four food each turn. Now if you get two or three of those before anybody else does, you're going to have to pay about half as much food each turn, which is going to let you concentrate on getting points instead of, you know, keeping going back to those hunting grounds. Next, I'm going to talk about the love hut. Here's where young cave people go to fall in love. They gather around the bonfire, young cavemen play romantic ballads on their acoustic guitars, and magic happens. So you must place two of your people here. Uh, make sure they are a male and a female. You're going to want to look carefully at the pieces. Just kidding, they're all the same. 
but then they go into the love hut and they snuggle in the mammoth rug. Um, and when you resolve this, you get another worker from the bag. You start with five, so if you put someone in the love hut, when they're done with the love hut, then you're gonna get one more and you'll have six people for the next turn. Isn't that fantastic? And if you keep going, you'll get up to 10 people if you spend quite a bit of time in that love hut. But beware, if you do that too much, you're gonna be spending almost your whole game getting food unless you've planned and, and worked at getting food at the same time. Finally, let's talk about the tool-making hut. The tool-making hut, you, you put a person in there and they will make you a tool. You take a token with the number one on it and you put it on one of the three squares on your board. This is going to help you in collecting resources. For example, say you send two people to that gold river and you roll a total of five. Normally you'd be like, oh, nuts and you'd be out of luck. If you have that tool, you turn it sideways and you say, oh, plus one to my roll. And that will give you six, and then you could get a gold. Now you'll notice you have three squares on your player board for tools. Each time you go there, you'll get another one tool. Once you've filled all those three squares, when you get your fourth tool, you'll flip one of the one tools over and it has a two on the side. So you'll have a two, a one and a one. So a total of four power in tools. Now you've got quite a bit of help in collecting your resources. Let me give you an example of how that might work. I have one two tool and two one tools. I have three men on gold and two men on brick. I roll three dice for the gold river first. Uh, the dice total ends up to be a total of 11. I want to use one of my one tools and I turn it sideways because 11 plus 1 is 12 and that's going to give me 2 gold. Then I can save the other two tools since they don't really help me right now. Then I'm ready to collect brick. I roll for the brick and I get a total of 6. I use the 2 tool by turning it sideways to make a total of 8. 8 divided by 4 is 2 so it'll give me 2 brick. Now my extra tool didn't really help me this turn. Well that's life but maybe next turn I'll be able to use all my tools. So my turn is over. I reset my tools by turning them all right side up and they're ready to be used again next turn. Now there are three tools and four tools. Those are used the same way. When you get to six power and tools, that is you have a two tool, a two tool, and a two tool, and you get another tool, then you pick up a three tool to replace one of your two tools and you'll end up with a three, a two, and a two. So those are the three huts. Again, the farming hut reduces the amount of food you need each turn. The love hut gives you more people. And the tool hut will help you collect resources more efficiently. All right, so now you have your resources. Let's talk about what you do when you get all those resources. We're gonna talk about building tiles and civilization cards. First, let's get to those building tiles. Those are the four stacks of cardboard chits on the lower left side of the board. These are one of the largest ways to get victory points. After you collect some resources, you're gonna to wanna to build a building. To build a building, you're gonna to have to claim that building by when we're placing workers, place one of your workers on the stack that you want. Then when we're resolving and you get the resources, you just pay the resources and you get that number of points. Now, it's good to know that that point number isn't out of thin air. All it is is the addition of the collection numbers of the resources that you put into it. For example, if you had a building tile with two stone and one brick, I can tell you it'd be worth 14 points because it's 
5 plus 5 plus 4. Those are the collection numbers of those resources. And so it's worth 14 victory points. So another example, if you got the tile that had two wood and one brick on it, wood plus wood plus brick is 3 plus 3 plus 4. That's going to be worth 10 points. There are two special kinds of buildings that are a little more flexible. There's one that's the 1 to 7 building. It says 1 to 7, and then it has what looks like a Wheel of Fortune symbol on it. It's like a circle with the colors brown, red, gray, and yellow. This symbol always means any building resource. So that would be wood, brick, stone, or gold, but not food. So this building, 1 to 7 of any resource, is very flexible. You can build any building you want from a building with just one wood, which of course would only be worth three points, or you could even spend up to seven gold on a building, making it seven times six, being worth a whopping 42 points. Any combination in between. For example, you could do something like three gold and two brick. Six plus six plus six plus four plus four, which is going to be 26 points. These buildings can be really nice because of how flexible they are. You can basically use whatever you've got lying around. Now, there's some buildings that have specific numbers and a specific amount of different resources they want. For example, if you see one that says the big number four, and then in parentheses there's two Wheel of Fortune symbols, that means you need to use four resources of two different types. So for example, you could do two wood or two brick, or three wood and one gold, or two gold and two stones. Another example is the five parentheses four. In this case, you need to use five resources, but you need to use all four of the different kinds. For example, you could use one wood, two brick, one stone, and one gold. You must play exactly what it says and exactly the right number of types. When you buy the building, you take it, place it on your mat, you score the points on the point track immediately along the outside of the board. And immediately, right away, not at the end of the turn, flip the next building tile so players will know what's coming next. Keep in mind that when you resolve your turn, you're allowed to resolve your workers in any order. So you could go on a building tile without having the resources at the start of the turn. In fact, you could go buy a building on your first turn by going on the spots to get the resources and getting a person on the building tile. It may happen now that you plan poorly or change your mind and either can't or decide not to build on the spot that you place the guy to build on that turn. And that's allowed. In fact, you, you can even choose to place a guy on a spot simply to block someone else from building that building, which is legal, but of course you're going to burn one of your workers for the turn. Now let's move on to the civilization cards. These are the four cards in the lower right hand uh, part of the board. When placing workers, you can place a worker on top of the card, there's a circle on the card, to claim that card. The cost of the card is from 1 to 4 Wheel of Fortune symbols, and we know what that means by now. 1 to 4 of any resource you choose, which you're probably going to want to be wood or brick because they are cheaper resources. So from left to right, the first card costs 4 of any resources, then 3, then 2, then 1. Now, the one on the farthest right will probably be bought first, which is fine because at the end of the turn, the cards slide to the right and refill 
Keep in mind, like the buildings, you could gather your resources first and then buy a card. So you could buy one of those cards on the first turn by going on, say, wood, and then on that first card all the way to the right. The cards always give you two rewards, an immediate bonus on the top of the card and a scoring bonus on the bottom of the card, which you save till the very end of the game. When you buy a card, you immediately take the bonus. Some of the bonuses are a free resource, a free farm, or roll two dice for a certain resource, etc. Keep in mind that you can use the tools on most of these rolls. Now there's a player aid to help explain all of the bonuses, because there's no words on the cards, there's just symbols. And for your first game that can be hard to read, but once you play the game a time or two, those symbols will become quite clear. One of the bonus cards on the top that I'll talk about, because there's quite a few cards on it, is what I'm going to call the Caveman Christmas card. Ho, 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 ooga booga. Now, I, it's the Caveman Christmas card because you get to play as Neanderthal Santa Claus, as this card gives everyone in the game a present. Now, I wish these cards had Santa hats on them, but actually they have dice symbols on the top from six to one all the way at the top, which show the different presents. When you take this card, you roll dice for the number of players in the game. So there's four players, you roll four dice. Now that shows the available rewards. The rewards are six is a farm, five is a tool, four is a gold, three is a stone, two is a brick, and one is a wood. Then, starting with you, each player will choose a gift going clockwise around the table. Now usually this will go from the highest number to the smallest number because the highest ones typically are more valuable. But it is technically a choice, so if someone wanted something else they could take it. So the first player, let's say it came up 6, 5, 3, 1. The first player would probably take the farm, the next player clockwise would take the tool, the next player would take the stone, and the last player would end up with the wood. And keep in mind, tools may not be used to affect this roll. Now don't be afraid of these cards because they give everybody something. They most likely will probably give you a farm pretty cheap, which is nothing to sneeze at. So don't ignore those cards. After you receive the immediate bonus on the top of the card, you can flip it face down to keep it a secret until the end of the game from the other players because it shows you a lot of the chunks of points you're going to get at the end of the game. Now you're always allowed to look at those cards to remind yourself, but you want to keep those away from the thoughts of the other players. Now of course they can remember what, what you've taken, but most people, unless they have a superhuman brain, won't know exactly what you've got under that pile. Now there are two cards that give you a one-time bonus that you can use whenever you want. And you don't flip those cards over until after you've taken the reward so that you know that you've used them. Uh, there are one-time big tools, like a three tool and a four tool, and those only work once. And after you use them, then you flip it over. Another card with the two Wheel of Fortune symbols on the top is two free resources of your choice, usually which is cashed in for gold. But the nice thing is you can hold on to that face up to flip it over for what you need at a specific time. You don't have to take it right away. A lot of times the one-time tools get confused with the free tools. There are a couple cards that actually give you tool tokens, but those say plus one on them. The one-timers are three tool and a four tool. You don't actually get tool tokens with those cards. 
Now, let's look at the bottoms of these civilization cards. There's two kinds of super bonuses these give you. There are culture cards and what I'm going to call leader cards. Culture cards have green backgrounds and a symbol on them. These are like Pokemon cards because you want to catch them all. There are eight different symbols and you get exponentially more points for the more different cards that you have. This is outlined on your player board, but here are some examples. If you have five cards with different culture symbols on them, all different, no repeats, you would then get five times five points at the end of the game, 25 points. Now if you collect all eight different cards, you would get, guess what, eight times eight, or 64 points. So it's better and better exponentially, like I said, the more different ones you can acquire. This includes a second set. If you have extras, you get points for those as well. So if you had two flute cards, two wheel cards, one pot, and one cart, essentially you have one set of four and one set of two. So you're going to get four times four, which is 16, and two times two, which is four, for a total of 20 points for those cards. Now leader cards have a sandy colored background and a picture of one or more leaders for your tribe. The leaders will give you points for success in a certain area. There are builders for collecting buildings, farmers for collecting farms, tool makers for tools, and shaman for the number of people that you have. The tool makers give you points equal to number of tool makers times your number of tools, and that's how many points you get. For example, if you have two tool makers and five tools, you would get two times five, which is 10 points. If you had, say, a card with only one shaman on it, and you had eight people in your tribe, you'd get one times eight, eight points at the end of the game. Keep in mind it is what you have at the end of the game, not what you get when you collect the card. So when you take that card, that might give you an idea of what you want to build towards. Now as you can see, these cards can be worth a lot of points, so keep an eye on them. Say there's a card with two shaman symbols on the bottom. If you manage to get all 10 people at the end of the game, this card would be worth 2 times 10, which is 20 victory points. Not to mention the free goodie that you got from the top of the card. Now remember I said the civilization cards are listed down in order of price from 1, 2, 3, 4. Probably one or two will get bought each turn. At the end of the turn, very end, we're going to slide the cards, all the cards over to the right and refill the empty spaces from right to left. Now let me give you a tip. Every card in the deck is worth one resource, probably one, one wood. There is not a card in that deck that is not worth the price of one wood. So if it gets to you and you don't have anything you particularly want to take and that one card is available, take it. Now it could be that the two resource card could be more valuable to you and you may get take that in, in front of it. And that's one of the great things of this game. So let's go back and review how the game is played out. Starting with the start player, each player plays a worker or workers in one single area of the board. You're going to continue clockwise until all players have played their workers. Nobody's collecting resources yet, nobody's taking cards, nobody's getting points. You're just playing workers. Here's an example. Our players, John, Paul, Ringo, and George, are sitting around the table in clockwise order. John has won the pie-eating contest to go first. So John selects with his worker the farm. Takes one of his guys, puts it in the farm. Paul decides to go to the toolmaker hut. 
Ringo takes two of his guys and places them in the love hut. So Ringo. George decides to take the civilization card that costs one resource. John takes the remaining four people and puts them in the wood area. Paul decides to take his three of his workers and fill up the forest there. There's only seven spots there, remember? So he takes three of his guys and goes in the forest. Ringo takes the three guys he has left and puts them in the hills to get some brick. George has four guys left. He puts them in the quarry to go get some stone. And Paul has just one guy left and so he decides to buy the civilization card that costs two resources. So then the start player, which is John, resolves his workers by taking his workers off the board. He does this by choosing any order he wants to do those actions. He has people in the farm house and people in the forest. So he decides to take his person off the farming hut first. He moves his counter up to one farm. And then he decides to go for the wood he gets four dice because he has four people there and he rolls them. John gets an 11. He takes 11, divides it by three, and he gets three wood tokens. So then the next player would get to go. The next player is Paul. He decides to take his tools first, which is pretty wise. He takes his three dice, he rolls them, he gets eight. Well, now he can use the tool to make that total nine and he gets three wood. Nine divided by three is three. Then last, he uses two of those wood to buy the card that he put his man on. He takes what's on top of the card, which happens to be a bonus of three victory points. He scores those immediately. And then he flips the card face down to keep the bottom scoring part a secret till the end of the game. Then the other two players would resolve their turns. Everyone would pay food. The two civilization cards would slide down. We'd put two more out. We'd pass the start player marker to Paul, and we're all ready for the next turn. So let's talk about that feeding people. So you always have to pay one food for each person at the end of your turn. Uh-oh, what if you don't have enough? And it could happen that you don't have enough. Maybe you don't roll well, or maybe you're just silly and forget. Or maybe you're trying to be really sneaky and annoying and not feed your people. Well, if you don't have enough food to feed everyone, in an emergency, you can eat wood, stone, and brick, and gold. For each food that you're short, you may pay a building resource to make up the difference of food you are short. Now, if you still don't have enough, you're going to be penalized. You have to pay all the food tokens you can. You don't have to pay building resources if you do not want to. But if your workers do not get enough food, you're going to get a 10-point penalty. And you can go negative in this game. Just move your piece behind the zero. So the game continues until the end of a turn when one of two things have happened. One of the four stacks of building tiles is completely empty, or the civilization cards don't have enough left in the deck to refill to four cards on the board. Or both can happen on the same turn. It's pretty likely. Now keep in mind you do still have to feed on the last turn of the game. At the end of the game, you already have scored points from your building tiles. We basically just need to score those civilization cards. You will get one point for each building resource you have left over. So say you had two brick and two stone and a gold left in your pile that you didn't get a chance to use, that's just going to be worth five victory points. Now each player will probably take a turn re revealing their cards and showing how many points that they've gotten. Here's a complete score for, say, Clem Flapdoodle. Let's say he got 80 points already from building building tiles. He has on his civilization cards five different culture symbols, which are worth 25 points, five times five. 
He had three tool makers total on the bottoms of his cards, and he collected five tools. So he'll get three times five, which is 15 points. And he had a card with a shaman on it. He only had five people in his tribe, so he gets one times five, five points. So his score is 80 plus 25 plus 15 plus five. His final score is 125. Each player will add up their score in this way, and whoever has the most points wins. Part three, the hamster. How do you win this game? All right, so let's talk some basic strategy to get you ready for your first game. When it comes down to it, all worker placement games have the same idea, prioritizing. Winning this game is all about picking the best order in when and where to place down your guys. So let me give you some advice with this. Now at the start of the game, those three special huts, you know, the farming hut, the love hut, and the tool making hut, these are by far the most powerful spots in the game, most particularly the farming hut. But what's interesting in this game is that as the game goes on, those spots become less and less useful because you don't get to use those farms and tools and extra people for as much of the game. For example, on the last couple turns, those areas are almost useless. When the game starts to get towards the middle of the game, which you can judge by the uh, Civ card deck and the building tiles, you really need to start focusing more from those three huts to those those civilization cards, as civilization cards can have large chunks of points. And in that mid and even near the end of the game, you have to be looking at those building tiles and be aware of the ones that you're going to want to buy. That's going to help you decide you know, which of the resource areas you should be going to. Keep an eye out for those flexible buildings as those are really easy to meet and you can just pretty much use whatever you have lying around. Also, keep an eye on when the game is going to end looking at the tiles and cards again, because in this game, you'll want to be broke of building resources at the end of the game. If the game ends and you have a pile of gold and stone and brick, you've lost the game, because instead of getting three, four, five, or even six points for those particular resources, you're only going to get one point each. When choosing what resource to go on, it's no big secret that wood should be a high priority for you. The reason is that you're going to want to buy a lot of civilization cards through the game and you always want to buy those cards with wood if you can because wood is so much cheaper than getting gold. Finally, a trap that many of us fall into throughout our lives. Don't spend too much time in the love hut. If you concentrate too much on love early in the game, you may find yourself spending much of your resources just feeding your people and going around in circles. And you're spending all this time hunting and other people are focused on just scoring points. Now if you get people, you better get the farms and food to go with it. Now there is a strategy which I completely despise, but I suppose I should tell you about. Some people like the starving strategy, where you just go to the love hut, get 10 guys as soon as possible, and don't feed them for a few turns. Go in negative 20, 30, or even 40 points, and just use all your guys to get building resources and buy a ton of buildings. Now I hate this strategy and I never use it, simply because it bothers me, the thought of all these poor innocent people starving to death and making them work for you, digging gold out of the mountains just for you. It's just wrong, people.
If I designed this game, I would have made the penalty for starving much more harsh. Like, you know, you had to burn more resources, maybe 20 points, maybe, you know, your opponent gets to slug you in the arm, something like that. But it is a viable strategy, so be aware of that, and if you're particularly sadistic, you might want to give that a shot. Lastly, and perhaps more important, this game rewards specialization. There are five major categories to shoot for, people, farms, tools, buildings, and the culture cards. Try to focus on just one or two of these. This game will reward you exponentially for focusing. If you try to do a little bit of everything, you're not going to score nearly the amount of points as if you focus on a few of those categories. And it's one of those games, like almost all of these games, that you want to try to do what other people are not doing. If you're the only guy grabbing up the tools, you're probably going to get 8, 9, 10 of them, and those toolmakers are going to score you boatloads of points. So that's all the advice I have for you without giving too much of the game away. I hope you have a lot of fun playing with this game. It's a great one. It's a great game for everybody. Give it a shot. Part four, footnotes. So here's where I cover all those tiny little rules that don't really fit into the main explanation, but they are important to know. Here are the vegetables, as I like to call them. It's good to know that you can't replay in a resource area. I think I mentioned this, but it's easily forgotten. If you play two guys in the forest, when it gets to be your turn around again, you can't go back in the forest. Same with the hunting area and the quarry, etc. Also, in the worker placement phase, you're not allowed to pass when you still have guys. You have to put your guys somewhere on the board, at least one of them at some place on the board. It's very important to know that if you're going to play with two or three players, there are some important changes in the game to make the game scale down for those numbers. So with both three and two players, you can only go to two of the different huts, the farming hut, the love hut, and the tool making hut. Once two of those huts are filled, the other hut may not be gone to. There's also a restriction on going to get resources. With three players, once two players have gone to a certain area, say the forest, say the red player and the blue player have gone to the forest, the yellow player can now not go to the forest. Same thing with all of the other building resource areas, the clay pit, the quarry, and the river. With two players, it is the same, but only one of the two players can go to each particular area. So once one person goes to the quarry to get stone, the other player may not go get stone that turn. Everything else remains the same. Same number of buildings, same number of cards. Just the hut restriction and the resource area restriction. A few other things. Some people look at their player board and they see five places for buildings. No, you don't have to stop when you get to five buildings. It's just what fit on that particular player board. So, um, you know, just build them along the side or stack them up. It really doesn't matter. It's just a place for you to put those buildings that have been built. Tiebreaker, if it should come up. You get a tiebreaker number, which is you add your number of farms, your number of tools, and the number of people in your tribe. And whoever has the highest total of those three things, farms, 
tools and people will win the tiebreaker. It's good to know too that the resources are not limited by the number of pieces in the game. The pieces in the game are very nice, but I think because of that they shorted you a few, especially with the wood. So uh, go dig out your copy of Settlers of Catan or Transamerica and get some of those uh, chunks of wood to be used as wood because it's pretty common to run out of wood. Uh, last thing I mentioned is in researching for this I found out there's a bit of a controversy scoring the culture cards. Some people with the second set of culture cards, like say in my example when I had two flute cards, two wheel cards, one pot card, and one cart, uh, they would say that the second set only gets one point each. The English rules are a little bit fuzzy on that, but I think with further probing it, it seems like the correct way to play it is the second set of cards is square just like the first set. It shouldn't make a big difference. There's only two of each picture in the deck. Well, that's it for Stone Age. Stay tuned here at the very end because I have a special little segment here uh, Mr. Booga would like to perform for you. But first of all, just let me say that I really appreciate all of your feedback and all of your support in starting up this podcast. Uh, right now I'm looking at upgrading the audio above the $10 mic I'm currently operating on. If you'd like to support this show financially, even you know, $5, $2, $10, a nickel, uh, easy way to do that, I set up a donation button on my website, howtoplaypodcast.com. Look in the upper left corner, you'll see a little button that says donate there. Uh, I'm not expecting to you know, get rich off this, but you know, a few bucks to help out with the cost. It's going to cost me you know, 150 bucks or so to host the podcast this year, not to mention the about 100 I'm looking at on spending on a new microphone. So if this show is worth a few bucks to you, please consider uh, making that donation. Thank you so much to all of you for listening and making the How to Play podcast a success. What will be next? Remember, you can still go vote on the poll. There are some leaders there that I'm considering. There are several games above the 10 vote mark, which is very exciting. Puerto Rico, El Grande, Brass, oh no, even 18XX, all fighting it out. So if you want to get your voice heard, put your vote in. Give me a few suggestions. I'd love to hear what you'd like to see. There are also a few games that aren't on there that I'm considering doing sort of as a surprise. I also have a few other ideas related to teaching and learning games for you know side podcasts not focused on a particular game that I'm thinking about doing as well. So stay tuned. I hope you're subscribed on iTunes so you don't miss one scintillating minute of the How to Play podcast. So that's about it for Stone Age. And as promised, I'm going to leave you today with Mr. Booga on the acoustic guitar. Um, I would like to apologize. He's not a very good singer, but he does swing a club very well. So be nice. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Okay, girl. Okay, girl. Cave girl, cave girl. Uga, 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 uga.